Hey, before we start, we're excited to announce that we have a new sponsor. Coffee with the Greats is brought to you by Bixby Coffee. So for season two, we're bringing you the complete package. We've already been bringing you the Greats. Now Bixby will bring you the coffee. Welcome back to a whole new season of Coffee with the Greats, a podcast that asks living legends how they got to be great and what they learned along the way. If you're new here, thanks for the listen. You can check out some of the amazing conversations we've had with inspiring guests from season one, and be sure to subscribe so that the next episode will magically appear on your phone when it comes out. Today, we're in for a real treat as we sit down with Bob Iger, executive chairman of the Walt Disney Corporation. Bob has been employed within the same company for 46 years, first at ABC Television, rising the ranks within their sports unit, before eventually making his way to Disney, where he became CEO in 2005. Bob has built on Disney's rich history of storytelling and innovation, with the acquisitions of Pixar, 2006, Marvel, 2009, Lucasfilm, 2012, and 21st Century Fox, 2019. Talk about some of the all-time merger home runs. He also created an ambitious direct-to-consumer strategy that leveraged Disney's unparalleled creative content across new platforms like Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. As we begin season two of this show, I just want to share how excited, how grateful I am that this podcast even exists. It started as a personal father and son project and seems to be growing into something pretty cool. I don't know about you, I, I have a hard time reading magazine articles these days, reading any interview for that matter. I just want to sit down and listen, be there in the room. I don't need someone else editing for me. Well, that's what Coffee of the Greats has become, a private fireside chat with extraordinary men and women. Back to Bob Iger. I mean, what can I say? The truth is, he's a personal hero of mine. In addition to being a titan of industry, he's a devoted family man, very sincere and introspective. I mean, he sure seems to have it all. That, that includes a pretty impressive vocabulary, a great sense of personal style. I'm pretty sure he's in better physical shape than I am, despite the age difference. I'll stop myself right there, but... <laughs> I will say there's a good bit in here that I don't believe Bob has ever spoken about publicly. You're in for a treat, so sit back, brew up a cup, and enjoy this episode of Coffee with the Greats with Bob Iger. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, 1951, so six years after the end of World War II. Uh, to a father who was uh, a Navy man. He, he served in the Navy during World War II, and a mom who was a housewife, both Brooklyn-born as well, uh, and ended up uh, living there until I was about five, and then moving to the suburbs. My dad was able to buy a house on the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. about $10,000 and got a, an interest-free mortgage. And I uh, spent my formative years uh, in a suburb of New York, in the post-World War II era, where just about every father on the block had been a veteran. And as kids, we played with our father's uh, war uniforms and played army or war or whatever. It's kind of interesting to look back today. Had a relatively normal childhood and a somewhat uh, middle to lower middle class, yet bucolic suburb of New York. Uh, and as I think back on those times, I think back with nothing but... Uh, a smile on my face, although, you know, my life had some challenges, which we can get into a, a little bit. But, um, but overall, I had a uh, I had a, gr a great childhood and uh, one that I think uh, was very, very instrumental in terms of my experiences, my learning, my friendships, uh, the environment that I lived uh, that I lived in. Uh, very influential on what became of me uh, in, in later in life. And did you did you know your grandparents? I knew three of my four grandparents. My mom lost her dad to a heart attack during World War II, mm -hmm. when her two older brothers were actually uh, fighting in Europe, which is a, huh? a real hardship. 
Uh, my father's uh, parents were uh, both both alive. One lived till I was uh, a preteen, and one lived until well into my adult life. She actually died at ninety nine. Although, yeah, it wasn't until she died that we learned she was actually ninety nine. We always thought she was five years younger. She lied about her age <laughs> her entire life. <laughs> uh, but yes, I knew three of my four grandparents. And did I read correctly, or do I understand they had, uh, had settled in Oklahoma, your grandparents? Is that correct? Oh, in Indian territory that. back then. My father's father, uh, who was born in the United States, huh. um, ended up uh, moving with his family. I guess his father, so my great-grandfather, uh, huh. decided, I guess, to seek some kind of fame and fortune outside of New York City. <laughs> we don't know to this day whether he was heading somewhere else, but he ended up in Idabel, Oklahoma. You get a sense that he probably wasn't intending to go there, <laughs> uh, but he either got stuck or loved it or both. I don't know. But he opened up a general store in Idabel, Oklahoma, adjacent to a Choctaw Indian reservation. And that's where my my uh, paternal grandfather spent his youth until he went off to fight in World War One. And then when he came back from that war, he uh, he went back. He went to New York. You know, that was Indian Territory back then, before it became the state of Oklahoma. Yes, yes. You have deep roots. You're part Native American. <laughs> well, would, that would, the Native American, be careful because Trump will call me Pocahontas. Um, <laughs> the Native American me in me is only the fact that um, uh, at some point, we, when going through the attic in my grandparents' home, we found dozens of Choctaw Indian artifacts, not artifacts, but uh goods, uh, blankets right. and, and things uh, like that, that they had brought to Brooklyn. Uh, uh, I have no idea what became of them. They'd probably be very valuable today. That's about as close as I come to Indian roots. Growing up uh, in the suburbs in New York in the early 60s, as you're kind of approaching high school, what, uh, what posters did you have on your bedroom wall? I mean, were you, did you follow, did you have sports heroes? Did you I did. Uh, I was a big sports fan, still am. Uh, I yep. see a Dodger jersey behind you, Miles. Uh, Sandy Koufax. Yes. Yeah, so I'm a. I, I was a Yankee fan. Uh, my dad, although the first baseball game I ever went to, this is relevant to that jersey, uh, was at Ebbets Field in 1955. Wow. Uh, my dad took me to a game that was uh, the Dodgers versus the Cincinnati Red Legs. They did. They weren't called the Reds because of communism. So they, they call themselves the Red Legs. I don't believe Sandy Koufax played, although somewhere here I have a uh, I have a, his his rookie baseball card in a signed ball um, because he was a Brooklyn boy. He actually mm. went to high school in Brooklyn. But anyway, I was uh, uh, when the Dodgers moved to California, my dad said we will never root for them again. Uh, <laughs> deserters. <laughs> and I became a Yankee fan. And uh, and remain a Yankee fan to this day. In fact, I was elated. I exchanged uh, emails or texts with my son Max last night, who was following the game and the debates. Um, <laughs> and I guess one, the Yankee game was a lot better than the debates because the Yankees won. Anyway, Yankee fan, Green Bay Packer football fan, New York Knicks fan. Had posters of players that I was uh, that I looked up to. And then at some point, as I uh, entered my teenage years. Um, I, I ended up with a poster of Raquel Welch. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> um, I remember it to this day. And then, and actually the other, the other thing that's kind of interesting about it is my parents collected covers of New Yorker magazine, the New Yorker magazine. Oh, great. And we never quite figured out what to do with them. And then at some point they decided they would wallpaper my room in them. So I, I, I had an entire room wallpapered in New Yorker magazine covers. Well, that's pretty highbrow for a, a kid, a teenager. Yes, I guess I guess so. And I guess maybe that was their way of getting rid of the Raquel Welch. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah. were you a fan of Maury Wills and those guys back then? Or do you remember? I remember him. You know, obviously, the, my beginning years were the great 50 to 55 Dodger team that won the World Series against the Yankees. And that was more, you know, Don Newcomb, Sandy Koufax, uh, oh, yeah. Robinson, Pee Wee Reese. That era, Wills came along. My recollection is in the '60s. Don Drysdale joined the team, and they were those great uh, mid mid '60s, well, early to mid '60s Yankee uh, Dodger teams. Yankees beat the Dodgers, by the way, in the '63 World Series, if I recall correctly. 
no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Dodgers beat the Yankees in the 63 World That's Series. That's right. Four zip. Uh, the Yankees won in 61 and 62. And then we're in in 64, lost to Bob Gibson and the St. Louis Cardinals. And then they didn't appear. Yankees didn't appear in a World Series again until the mid to late 70s. You know, it's interesting for our generation, particularly now, uh, these concerns that we have about our society. You and I grew up, because I'm two years older than you are, but my heroes were Willie Mays, Maury Wills, Willie McCovey, Jackie Robinson. I mean, we had examples of great people back then who were, uh, they're black and they were different than we were, but we worshiped those people. At least I did. I know you did that great, by the way, great Yankee series in 62 against the Giants where McCovey and Mays played uh, against the Yankees. Yankees won in seven, but I remember McCovey hitting a wicked line drive at the end of the game caught by the second baseman of the Yankees, Bobby Richardson, I think to end the World Series. (laughs) Funny, I still remember that. (laughs) Just an aside about idols, when I became a Yankee fan, their star in the late 50s was Mickey Mantle. And I always vowed that if I ever had a son, I would name him after Mickey Mantle. (laughs) Uh, My former wife and I had two daughters, so I never got a chance to name a son. And then when Willow and I got married, she got pregnant and was pregnant with a boy. I thought, ah, this is the first time I have a chance. (laughs) We were then I was then working for Disney. And I thought if I named my son Mickey, he would (laughs) forever start. So I never got to use that name. I just read the most incredible story uh, about Emperor Hirohito. Are you familiar with this story? I am not, but it's funny. I'm just reading a book about the uh, the end of World War II in the Pacific and learn more about him than I ever knew. But go ahead. I don't know the story. Well, it, it, essentially, the, the, the Cliffs Notes are uh, in 1975, uh, Hirohito was 74 years old. He is the living emperor who had been uh, in power since World War II. And he, it was his first ever visit to America. And it's a whirlwind tour. He visits nine states. And of course, they asked, do you have any special requests? He only had two special requests. I want to visit Disneyland and I want to meet John Wayne. And so uh, they set it up and John went to Duke was there at Disneyland. And um, they gave him as a gift, a little quartz Mickey Mouse watch. So he returned to Japan and apparently he wore it every single day, even at the most formal of occasions, um, which is not something you see every day in the you know, imperial palace. And when he died, again, this man, a living God uh, of, the, of the most ancient uh, family in existence, uh, he was asked to be buried with only three things. His telescope, uh, microscope, he was an accomplished marine biologist scientist, a list of his famous uh, favorite sumo wrestlers, and his Mickey Mouse watch. Ah. You know, with the arms kind of moving around. And just that story, what is it about just the magic of Disneyland, of Mickey Mouse, something so personal that this man was buried with it? I just think that's an an extraordinary reflection on uh, on the imagination of the company you helm. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. I have one of those original, I have an original Mickey Mouse watch. If I knew you were going to bring this up, I'd have it here. It's just upstairs. (laughs) Uh, it has a charm to it that's incredible. It was an Ingersoll watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Walt Disney's uh, decision to license Mickey Mouse to that watch company saved the company. Mm. The company was right? going under, uh, and its license for the watch saved it. It's a beautiful watch with a great original metal Mickey band. There's something about Mickey Mouse that is so infectious, and I, I you know, I guess you have to, you know, give Walt all the credit in the world to a design concept and then infusing the the character itself with a personality that was so engaging. I like to use the word insouciant, um, but I think it's much more than that. Mickey was kind of an everyman Mm. type uh, character. And the fact that he turned 90 in, uh, in, in 2018 and we had celebrations and it's just staggered me to in, in studying Mickey over nine decades, 90 years, just how enduring the character is still number one licensed character in the world, just in terms of revenue spent on merchandise with a character with a licensed character. Nothing is bigger and it's big. I want to go back to your family because as I understand your uncle was a cartoonist, isn't that correct? Uh, Jerry Iger, is that your uncle? Very good. Mm -hmm. And um, do you remember him at all? Or is that part of I do. I remember him quite well. So um, my 
paternal grandfather uh, had a pretty large family, and his brother was named Samuel Jerry Iger, and uh, he ended up dropping Samuel and uh, becoming Jerry. And Jerry was a, an artist, a cartoonist, and um, probably began commercially, meaning doing it for a living in the 30s, and uh, actually did quite well. So one of them was Sheena, Queen of the Jungle was his. <laughs> Jumbo Comics, wow. Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. That's pretty uh, racy. Uh, pretty racy. Well, I'll get to that. There's another one. <laughs> Here's one that he did, Jerry Iger's Girls. Whoa. All right. Now, there are a couple of things that are interesting about him. First of all, he ended up partnering with a man named Will Eisner, who was a, quite a celebrated cartoonist. And they created the Eisner Iger Studios. What's coincidental about that is, of course, I worked for Michael Eisner. No relation to Will. Oh. He was the CEO of the Walt Disney Company for 21 years. And there, Eisner and Iger <laughs> are back together again. And I called Will Eisner, who was still alive. He's since passed. And we got quite a kick out of the fact that um, he, he knew Jerry Iger, my great uncle, and obviously the connection to Michael Eisner. Jerry was a bit of a rogue. Uh, I think it's indicated, or you can you can get a sense of that from his his taste in 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 women, which is evidenced by his drawings. And I think early on, I went to his apartment in New York. He was a he was very urbane, and I opened some drawers in a studio in his apartment. And I think it was probably the first equivalent of pornography that I'd ever seen. <laughs> he draw he draw a lot of women. It wasn't the New Yorker uh, magazine. Yeah, these are not Hirschfeld sketches. <laughs> right, exactly. But I remember him well. He wore zoot suits. You know, he wore pinstripe suits and he had a mustache. <laughs> and he was he was quite um, citified, or you know, he was a he was, I guess, the playboy of the family. Bob, can you kind of take us into um, you know the in in your late twenties and early thirties? What did your professional life look like in your in your mid thirties? Oh, you well, well, by my mid-30s, I was already well along because I started at ABC. You said mentioned 45 years, actually 46 in, in um, 1974, the equivalent of a production assistant. And in fact, I worked on the uh, was working for ABC News when Nixon resigned in August of 74, was in the studio and had some involvement in the uh, Nixon impeachment hearings uh, huh. by, the, by the then House Judiciary Committee. And ended up working on a Frank Sinatra concert at Madison Square Garden, which um, ABC aired live in prime time. And that was produced by Rune Arledge, who was then head of ABC Sports, and Jerry Weintraub, who was a famous Hollywood producer. And my connection to my, my ability to, uh, well, not my ability, the opportunity to meet Rune and the sports people uh, ended up bringing me to ABC Sports from where I had been. Uh, which turned out to be just an incredible stroke of luck. And so I started working at ABC Sports sometime in the mid-70s and worked there through and after the uh, 88 uh, Winter Olympics in Mm -hmm. Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So I had a great run working on a show, mostly working on a show called Wide World of Sports, which was a a weekly Saturday afternoon and often aired both on Saturdays and Sundays, sports variety show, really. There were often one, two, or three different sports on and they could come from anywhere in the world. It's everything from wrist wrestling in Petaluma, California, to cliff diving <laughs> in Acapulco, to the you know the Grand Prix of Monaco, to a steeplechase horse event in in uh, the UK, to sumo wrestling, yeah. you name it. Yes, table tennis and and the like. Uh, and it was quite a program uh, in terms of both its appeal, uh, its um, ambition. Uh, and its impact on people, including me. And the ambition is the important part, because if I could describe Rune Arledge, who I worked for for 10 years, and he worked for me for 10, which is also interesting. And <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're, in a way, your mentor becomes your subordinate, so to speak, <laughs> although I'd never dare use that word to describe him. I guess I just did. Uh, but Rune was ambitious uh, in, in an extraordinary way, meaning he had... Um, he had big goals, big dreams, um, big ideas, and, and often didn't let anything get in the way of him fulfilling them or pursuing them. Uh, and I talk about him and, and the, the quality of being a perfectionist and relentlessly pursuing perfection. There was that too, but he was such a big thinker and he just never let things get in the way of him 
essentially carrying out what his dreams and wishes were. Quite something, quite a, an amazing influence on me uh, at a very, you know, time when I, you know, I was fairly impressionable. So by the time I was in my mid thirties, so born in 51, so we're talking about mid eighties, I had graduated. I think I, by that point, I was already a vice president at ABC Sports. Mm-hmm. I know that I was. Um, that happened, I think, in 83 or 84. And ultimately ended up coordinating a lot of our coverage of the Olympics uh, in, in Calgary and, and, and other places. And then from there, I was uh, plucked out of sports by the gentlemen who were running the company. And they sent me to California to run ABC's entertainment operation, which was an interesting one because I had never read a script in my life. Uh, just sports television background. That was it at that point. Uh, but they really believed that I had what it took, in their, at least in their opinion, <laughs> or I had what it takes. And uh, they gave me a shot, which is also interesting because I talk often about how we uh, overvalue experience and undervalue talent at times. You know, Typically, when we hire or when we promote, we look for experience first. Of course, you want to look for talented people. But it often gets in the way, our emphasis or overemphasis on experience often gets in the way of identifying great talent who you tend to be a little bit more cautious about if they don't have the experience. And I was the, uh, my success or the opportunities I was given was the result of the opposite approach, which is bet on what they perceive to be talent and worry about experience less. So no experience in entertainment, never read a script, and suddenly I'm running ABC's primetime business, which is all about scripted dramas and, and, uh, and comedies. But as I gather, um, Rune was uh, really big on, it can't just be a great sporting event, it, the, the larger narrative, the entertainment, the compelling uh, aspect of it that he really was a perfectionist in and kind of Im- imparted on you. I mean, the, the nuts and bolts of all of it is compelling storytelling. Yes, he used to talk about, well, the beginning of Wide World of Sports started something like this, the, the uh, all of a sudden, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, the um, human drama of athletic competition. I think it started with the, the human drama of athletic competition, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. He looked for a story in everything. And what he really looked for was a story that had a particular personality at its center. He really thought that the secret to engaging sports fans was uh, telling great stories or identifying great stories and 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 showing them to the public. And, and one of the ways that he did that was he scoured the world, not just for events, but for interesting athletes and made sure you cared about the athletes before you watched them in competition. So if we were preparing for an Olympics in Montreal, Canada in 1976, he made sure that you knew who um, Nadia Comaneci was, even though she was an obscure Romanian gymnast. So that when she ends up competing and gets a 10 in the Olympics, you care about her, not just for the performance, but you know who she is as a person. And that connection that he always made to the human being behind the achievement was very powerful in terms of his storytelling um, exploits. He was just amazing in that regard. So Uh, that's sort of a bridge to entertainment, right? So you you weren't in the complete darkness there. You hadn't read a script but you understand what compels people to pay attention. And that seemed to be a good step forward. And he, yes, he always sought to identify the essence of a great story, find the great story. And it's true to this day, really, at Disney, when we tell stories, uh, we often, you know, Walt Walt Disney was once asked, hey, who do you make make movies for, Walt? You make them for kids, you make them for adults with kids, families there. He said, no, I make them to touch that special place that exists in everybody's heart, which is basically tell a story that touches the heart, which is very, once you do that, it's really powerful. And so that's what we aim to do. And if you think about Pixar's Coco or Marvel's Black Panther uh, or, you know, Beauty and the Beast, Disney's Beauty and the Beast or Lion King or Moana, I could go on and on. Sure. We always seek to, in our stories, to find that one special element that touches people's hearts, which is the power of storytelling, but it's also the combination of a character with the character's experience or exploits. So since this is is intergenerational and 
I want to go back to your earlier years. When you were at Ocean Tide High School, you were at Ithaca. Uh, were you in love with telling stories? Did you tell stories? Were, was this, or was it totally different? You, did you doubt you could see where you ended up? But still. and also, did you did you share did you share stories with uh, with your family? Was was that well, kind of just? I do now. It's interesting because Richard, one of the things I I appreciated about you from I think the moment we met via phone is you're a great storyteller. <laughs> you just a year. You are, well, I always thought that. And if you read your speeches, by the way, you always right. have a great story to tell in every right. one of your speeches. And you uh, were ge always generous enough to share them with me uh, from your seat, right. I guess, at the Dallas Fed. And I enjoyed them uh, you know, tremendously. I never found myself, thought I was a great storyteller. Um, it's interesting because I ended up writing a book, which is a collection of stories. But it just wasn't, I, I appreciated a great story, but I didn't necessarily articulate one. And so as a kid, yeah, I love great stories and I, and, I, and I followed a lot of great stories, whether they were sports stories or politics and current events or whatever. Um, and it wasn't until late in life, I think when I gained a confidence, one of the things that I think a storyteller often needs is the confidence to find the words, to articulate. And yeah. I think a lot of people have it in their heads, but they don't necessarily get it into their mouths. Yeah, uh, to deliver it out of their mouths. And it took me a while to um, define that in me. And again, I think it was a confidence. And I don't think I really achieved it until I became CEO of the Walt Disney Company, mm -hmm. or just before, because I must have told the board a great story or they wouldn't have given me <laughs> the job. And it's interesting because when it came to writing a book, I, I didn't really set out to write a book. I was very self-conscious about it, thought for the most part, guys, particularly CEOs who write books are just on ego trips. And I had a friend in the publishing business, actually a great agent, a literary agent. She kept saying, you have a great story to tell. And I said, well, tell me what it is. And she said, well, I'm going to put you in front of some people in the business and, you know, let them draw it out. So I'm, next thing I know, I'm meeting with a group of people from Random House telling stories. And they're enthralled. <laughs> and they said, well, that's the book. <laughs> Uh, and it's it's fantastic. And you've you've also said that you're not entirely keen on business books and business leadership books that you've said you find them a little bit dry. I, I, I find the collection of stories, just your life story is extraordinarily compelling. And that's the that's the content a young guy like me needs, as opposed to, you know, another book by Jim Collins, Good to Great. Well, it's nice of you, Miles. I, I you know, the reason for writing the story, writing the book, rather, was just to impart what I learned along the way to younger people coming up. And I didn't want to presume that everything that worked for me would work for everybody, but to the extent that I could at least teach a few lessons in it in terms of basically describing what my experience was, what worked, what didn't work, how I got where I was, that they, I would be giving back in some form. And what I really set out to do was to tell a collection of stories. If all I was doing was writing a business book, I had no interest. And so that's what I tried to do was just, tell the story that was really my life, but it really is a, your life is a collection of chapters and each chapter is its own story. And uh, I, will, I will say it wasn't fun. Um, and I was very anxious about it, but it's been very gratifying to have uh, seen and heard from so many people um, great how much it resonated with people. It's great. That's on that. Proceeds too, to scholarships to, promote um, or to foster more diversity among in journalism, journalism mm. schools, including University of Texas, by the way. <laughs> uh, and it, it did very well. So I'm pleased to say that I've you know, given away, you know, a few million dollars plus in scholarships already and more to come. Wow. Wow. So good, good. Can so, I just ask before moving on from the book was um, what actually did surprise you most after it was out? You know, you, you went on a little bit of a, a press tour and all that. For someone at the helm of Disney who, you know, you know what it's like to move content, but on a personal level, was there any aspect that just kind of surprised you about actually yes. publishing a book? Still does, by the way. Um, look, I was CEO of the Walt Disney Company for 15 years, one of the most known and, and admired companies in the world. You'd think that sitting in that job that long would raise your profile uh, or at least establish a profile that was, you know, fairly big, well-known, et cetera. Not that it matters, but just fact of life. The book elevated that tremendously. It almost like it put my profile on steroids. I did not see that coming. Mm. And I think it's the result of the fact that people just genu genuinely like the book. 
but it ends up being, I think, you know, a, almost like rocket fuel or booster rocket, really, to, um, you know, my notoriety, which is, again, not something that I, I sought. Well, I didn't write it for that reason, but I'm surprised the number of requests that I get, people who want to talk. And did, I they make you feel, did they make you feel uncomfortable, Bob, at all? Or? Well, I think I've, yes, initially, because I got tired of hearing myself talk and it sounded, I sounded so self-important. I didn't really like that. Um, at this point, I've kind of gotten used to it. Um, and I'm just actually now, it's the only, the only thing tricky about it is juggling the requests. <laughs> and they're numerous. Better to be in demand than to, <laughs> to not I, be. I guess, I guess. But a busy person being in demand isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> coffee with the Greats is brought to you by a truly great coffee. Bixby Coffee. Bixby Coffee is roasted and shipped the same day you order it for the freshest, most convenient coffee you can find. Now, I genuinely believe Bixby is the perfect coffee to brew at home because I founded the company. And over the years, we've worked very hard to perfect the home coffee experience. I've been a coffee guy my whole life, and I've learned that no matter how you make your coffee, you always want the freshest roasted beans possible. So any coffee that's sitting on a grocery store shelf is inevitably going to be more stale than coffee that's been roasted and shipped directly to you the same day. Not only is our coffee insanely fresh, but it's made of the highest quality, sustainably sourced beans from around the world. Go to BixbyCoffee.com to discover the finest coffee blends in single origins. We offer whole bean, fresh ground, Keurig pods, and even specialty instant coffee. And if you live in the U.S., shipping is always free. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order. That comes to less than 10 bucks to have the freshest coffee you've ever made delivered right to your home. This is the good stuff, I promise. That's BixbyCoffee.com, B-I-X-B-Y Coffee.com. Back to the conversation. You know, I want to ask this question because you, all these magnificent steps along the way, all the great acquisitions you made when you were at Disney and the success you've had, there had to be moments of self-doubt along the way. And I'm, I wonder if you could just walk us through one or two where you thought either I can't do this or, man, I, I'm going to screw this thing up, which it doesn't appear you screwed many things up, by well, the way, I, you or know, anything for that matter. I Well, that's nice of you. I've made mistakes. Um, I That's a really interesting question because first of all, I'm a human being and you, all human beings, I think at some point have to question them something about themselves or the, question right. themselves in terms of whether they're able or, or you know, or uh, capable or whatever. Um, I, and I know along the way that happened a number of times, particularly my more formative years where I was often given jobs that were so far afield of what I was familiar with that I had some self-doubt for good reason as to how I would perform in them. It never stopped me from saying yes to them, from stepping up and accepting the responsibility, which is a lesson I try to teach people, is if you're asked, say yes, you know, even if you have some self-doubt and work to prove that you're wrong, that your self-doubt is, you know, not, you know, well-founded. Um, once I had the opportunity to pitch the board on becoming CEO, uh, I had developed uh, enough confidence in um, not only my ability to manage the company, but the direction I thought the company needed to go, that I really uh, did not suffer from self-doubt at all. If I did, I think it probably would have resonated with the board and it would have been a, more of a liability than an asset. <laughs> right, right. So I, I didn't really have that. And then I was so certain of the strategy that that I had designed and wanted to deploy uh, that I set about doing it right away, which started with the Pixar acquisition. Well, there's some other steps along the way, but mostly Pixar. And that worked very quickly. And mm -hmm. once that worked, it served as, you know, even more, a comp not only a confidence builder, but proof, proof of concept that maybe right. this strategy works. 
And so I don't really remember looking back and thinking, oh, wow, now we've blown it, Um, whether it was Pixar or Marvel or Lucasfilm. Um, I'd say, you know, the Fox acquisition was much more complex, much bigger. Um, And there were times that I, you know, worried about the complexity of it all and the ability of our company to manage a substantially larger footprint, more people, more places, more businesses. Uh, But we had put together a team of really great people and I knew it wasn't just me. And I had all the confidence in the team to um, make the acquisition work. And we brought great people in from the company we were buying. So I actually, Richard, I must say, I, I don't have, in the last 15 years anyway, I, if you go back to 05 when I stepped into the role as CEO, I don't really recall moments when I thought, wow, I'm now, have I really just blown it or? Uh, <laughs> Am I going to do it? Yeah, good. Hey dad, what what about what about you? Did you did you face personal doubts like in your first two months at the Fed? Did you ever feel like, whoa, I'm a little over my skis here? Well, this isn't about me, this is about Bob. I know, yeah. but I'm I'm curious just in your question for your own. Yeah, well, it was a t- it really was it took me into a different realm. Um, I didn't have any doubts because I remember Alan Greenspan telling me to speak to the truth, and I spoke the truth as I saw it, and I also had. Uh, different people I contacted to get inputs. One of them was Bob Iger, by the way. So uh, having been introduced, I think, Bob, it was uh, one of your directors that introduced us and uh, Fred Langhammer, I think it was. Yes. And uh, so if you have bigger brains behind you, brains like Iger's, then you feel pretty confident you can pull things off. So, um, no, I, I really didn't. There, there's, Times when I bit things off running for the Senate, which I was terrible at and shouldn't have done, but I learned a lot from, where I really realized halfway in there, I had made a mistake and I wasn't going to do well. But uh, that's as a younger man. So now late in my career, I, again, I had, I had a lot of people I could draw upon and take ideas from and listen to. And one of them is the person we're talking to. Richard, you said something that we should all pay heed to or, or um, note about speaking the truth. Um, One of the things that my dad uh, left me with, actually he wrote it in a yearbook of mine when I was really young. He quoted Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. true. Which is just an incredible set of words. And I I speak about that often. Um, You have to be authentic, you have to be genuine, you have to speak the truth, not uh, not only to others, but in a way to yourself, be who you are. Don't try to be something you are not. Well, it's that's Oscar Wilde says, be yourself because everybody else is already taken. And <laughs> managing people is um, complicated because people are complicated and no two people are the same. And managing creative people, I think, is particularly complex for a couple of reasons. One is that um, they are pouring their hearts out to you when they um, write or shoot or edit or uh, act in something that emanates from within them. Uh, It is often very, very of them, meaningful to them in visceral ways. And unless you are uh, amongst them in terms of creative creative, uh, force, you don't quite appreciate that. So when you manage them, you have to do so with incredible empathy. And it's hard because often you're not going to get what you want. They have specific ideas about what it is they're creating. And they don't really want to hear yours. Uh, or you have a completely different opinion about what they've made in terms of whether it's good or not. Uh, and, and it doesn't really matter what you think because it's theirs. And, right. and they have strong feelings about it. And I think often what people who manage creative uh, people do is they get very frustrated almost to the point of being disdainful and, and lose their ability to be empathetic and realize, Hey, that person who just pitched me that idea or showed me their movie, that's who they, that's really from within them. That's very important to them. So I try to remind myself of that all, all the time because one, it means I'm not going to get everything I want from them and I shouldn't try. Uh, secondly, I have to be, incredibly respectful and not let disdain uh, cause me to lose respect and patient 
and truthful. Um, so I try, and I there are interesting circumstances often where you know, I try really hard to ask someone, well, have you thought, this is great, but have you thought about this? Or there are elements to this that are really good, but there's a lot that I'm not sure of, and can we talk about them? And there are ways to do it. One, by the way, one very valuable lesson I learned early on is never go small, never be trivial. Hmm. Often what people do or imagine creative types is they go small, meaning they look at little things, nits, because they think in doing so, they prove to the creative entity that they have an eye, that they have a, a keen eye. It's like catching a typo. Yeah. yeah, it's the worst <laughs> thing you can possibly do uh, because the creative person normally will think, that's it? I mean, they, they care about the color of the hair or whatever it is. Um, like, come on. So I, I never do that. I often, by the way, sometimes I have small notes on things, but what I'll do is I'll try to stay more broad picture or big picture and more macro. And then when I'm done, if I've gotten anywhere and I'm still, they're still talking to me, I'll say, I got a couple of other small things I'd love to discuss. I'll send you an email or we'll talk down the road, that sort of thing. That's good. Uh, good management. But it's, it takes, look, I've been managing, or I should say working with is maybe the better way to put it because I try to be a partner. I've been working with incredibly talented creative people now. Oh, wow. I mean, certainly in the entertainment business since 1988, that's a long time. Mm. Um, and I've seen a lot and been through a lot. I've learned a lot. And I like to think that um, uh, I'm viewed more as friend, not foe, and more as partner and, than adversary by these people. Um, it doesn't get you any, by the way, being an adversary doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. But if you're all that debate, the debates last night, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk about that, too. But if you're a corporate type, a bureaucrat or or just a pure business person and you get in there and try to manage creative processes and creators with a heavy hand uh, because you feel that that's your responsibility. Good luck to you. Yeah, good. Great. Miles, Bob, you're 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 in the uh, acquisition World Hall of Fame with some extraordinary deals. I, I want to know if, if we could just talk just for a moment, just strictly about Marvel, because it's unprecedented success. It's so extraordinary. And <laughs> given that we have an AT&T board member, I have no idea how you compete with that. I mean, as, as I understand it, under Disney's banner, Marvel Cinematic Universe launched with 1.2 films a year, uh, just recently finished three films a year. And during that time, average cost goes down because you contract out future block shooting you know, talent costs go down. The unit average haul goes up 50%. So dad, if I could say to you, imagine growing your output two and a half times while simultaneously increasing your revenue 50% while decreasing your cost, the creative product stays competitive and innovative. I mean, that's just amazing. So I gather in 2022, you're going to be releasing four Marvel films a year, plus two to three TV series. So that means basically the Marvel Cinematic Universe is in fact becoming a service. You have 40 weeks a year with new Marvel TV content. And I just think, how on earth does anybody take oxygen away from that? Because that's amazing emotional attachment. I always think from the consumer's point of view, and you know, a fan might actually like Batman more than Tony Stark, but that person just spent 13 years and 15 films bonding with Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. That potency quality, it's just profound. Great people managing it um, in, in the, the Marvel team, which came with the acquisition, which is a, a lesson about acquisitions, by the way, which is when you buy uh, an entity, identify the great talent there and not only nurture them, but bring them into the fold, into the new company that they've been acquired by with a very deft hand, um, recognizing their value instead of forcing them and, and recognizing their individuality instead of forcing them to conform to the new company that, that, that they're now part of. Having been bought twice, once by Capital Cities at ABC and once secondly by second time by Disney, I know what it's like to be bought and how talent can often be, the value, valuable talent, you know, can often be um, turned off, ignored, um, undervalued. We have tried to do the opposite, whether it was the Pixar team or the Marvel team or the Lucas team. And in the Marvel, since we're on the subject of Marvel, and by the way, they haven't necessarily gotten less expensive. I know because you spent a lot of time <laughs> acting, Miles, you'll appreciate this. As those actors grew in stature, 
uh, which, by the way, benefited us greatly. Their, uh, the, the, the money they earn from the films, whether it's Chris Hemsworth as, as Thor or Chris Evans as Captain America or Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man or Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, and I could go on and on, uh, they get paid as their, as their popularity and the success of the films they're, they're acting in has risen. And we're fine with that, by the way, never disdainful. I like the fact that they are making a lot more money because it means that we're making a lot more money, thanks in part to their performances. Anyway, we've had great people at Marvel, Kevin Foggy and Lou Desposito, who ran the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, business and now running television for us, get the essence of the brand, the essence of the characters, know how to make, um, create great partnerships with directors and make great movies with them. And it's just working. It's, uh, it's one of the, you know, I've, got, I've had a lot of um, things that to, to appreciate in terms of achievements over the years. And it's one that I appreciate. It's all right up there uh, in terms of achievement, that buying Marvel and seeing to it that it thrives and then some, or th that it has, you can't say thriven, <laughs> that's thrived so much under Disney. It's a, it feel, just feels great. It's one of the great franchises of all time. And just to answer your question, Miles, what makes me sick is Tim Ewing and I bought the junk bonds when Perlman was getting involved. And we, Bob, I don't want to confess this to you, but we sold them very early, way before you all got involved, because we had a little bit of a profit. But if I just held on to them, I'd own the damn computer that we're speaking through right here, and the company that makes it. <laughs> yeah, well, a man named Ike Perlmutter uh, ended up controlling Marvel. Yeah, big fight with Carl Icahn to get control of it after um, after Ronald Perlman, uh, his ownership didn't fizzled out, and yep. it was Ike that we bought Marvel from. Uh, and I did extremely well in the transaction. That's another thing. I like the fact that the people we bought these companies from did, well. did really well. So if you mm -hmm. look at you know, Steve Jobs and this, he took, he owned half of Pixar and that was a $7.3 billion acquisition. So he, he converted his $3.6 billion in, in uh, Pixar to Disney stock. And that three and a half, three point six billion ultimately became worth well over I think thirteen, fourteen billion dollars. Uh, Lorene Jobs has since sold off, um, a, you know, a bunch of it, but they did extremely well. Ike Perlmutter, who controlled Marvel, did extremely well. Not only held on to Disney stock, but bought more because he recognized the value of the combined entity. And George Lucas, and now his wife Melody Hobson, because George owned all of Lucasfilm. That's it. But, but what George did was an incredible story. No partners, no debt. Um, owned all of Lucasfilm, never gave away any of it because he never had to and did extremely well. I think he got Disney stock in the 50s and mm. even in the pandemic, it's now in the 120s. Um, he got it and that was a transaction at the end of 2012. So that makes me feel great too, that we've, we've served the shareholders of those companies that we bought really well, which was part of my pitch to them, by the way, in in, in, in trying to, because in all three cases, uh, none of them were for sale. Um, I, I tried to convince them that selling to Disney would be a good thing. And I'm, I think I turned out to be right. You were right. <laughs> can, we, can we switch, uh, just personal a little bit, um, want to be sensitive of your time. Uh, Bob, I understand you are passionate about two wonderful ancient tools, bikes and boats. Can you tell us about about bikes and boats? I don't talk about boats too much, but okay. Um, I, uh, living in Los Angeles, by the way, is great when it comes to biking because you can't beat the weather, you know, Miles. Uh, and it, it beats Dallas, right? Yeah. So long, so long as there aren't <laughs> fires. So I go out, true. I go out, like I did this morning. I left my house at 6.15. It was dark. Uh, rode with a friend. Did about, oh, I don't know, 23 and a half, 24 miles along the beach to Venice and back. And uh, I do, I, I exercise for vanity and sanity. <laughs> it, makes me, it makes me look better. It makes me feel better. And I, I, over the years, have discovered that a good bike can be a motivating tool. So not that I've ever lost motivation to exercise, but buying a, a new great bike, which I fortunately have had the ability to afford, 
always sort of gets me to the next level. So I've got a great. Do you have a conversation with your with your friend as you as you bike? Do you listen to music or just? We talk uh, when I ride with friends. We talk. We we we. It's a serious. Like it's not a Tour de France ride. <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> 70, so I, I try to honor that <laughs> my body a little bit. But um, it's a good hard ride. We talk we um, about the world and life and looking at waves and et cetera and so on. Uh, so that's a but. My, in fact, I just had new tires put on, got it yesterday. Today I rode it. It was like riding a new bike, made me feel great. And I have a great bike. Great. And uh, I'm not going to, it won't be a commercial announcement. And then I grew up <laughs> in Oceanside, New York, uh, which was close to the Atlantic Ocean and loved sailing. And uh, somewhere along the line, got a Hobie Cat. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Early later in life and taught myself how to sail. It was almost suicidal. <laughs> those things are very fast and very unstable yeah and i learned the hard way but fortunately i was young and i graduated to um ultimately i owned a hinkley which was a great main built boat beautiful, beautiful. sailboat and then a few years ago my wife and i were fortunate enough to be able to afford building a bigger boat and so i've got a lovely sailboat that i enjoy a lot not enough by the way i don't use it enough but uh that uh, I actually can take the wheel of and and, and uh, es- escape my daily frets, to, to quote a Walt Disney phrase about Disneyland. You realize how small you are in the universe when you're out in the open ocean. And uh, you mentioned the Hobie Cats, uh, how perilous it can be. But I think it's also, don't you think it's a great character builder or at least restorer? Yes, um, because you're really... The elements are in control. You're not. Right. <laughs> reminds you. You're right. It it reminds you of the, I don't know, the size that a human being is only so big <laughs> and so strong. Not a superhero. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love it. It uh, is when you take the wheel of a sailboat and you turn that engine off. Uh, you are, you're in a, in a way you're turning your mind off to a yeah. lot of distractions too, and you have to concentrate on on the elements and yeah. you know, what a sailboat can do in, in the wind. There's some great writing on it. Roger Angel wrote a great piece for the New Yorker at one point. Even John Kennedy gave a great speech uh, before an America's Cup in Newport um, ah. about, about sailing in the sea, which is great too. We one of the great- Going back to the ocean. If you ever want to read, I think the classic, it's Chichester sailing alone around the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that- that's well, a great book. Yeah. Uh, I've read anything I can get my hands on, including the Patrick O'Brien series about the the, the British sea captain uh, during well, the Napoleonic Wars. And I, I not all that long ago read Horatio Hornblower. Uh, anything I can read about boats and sailing, I do. Fantastic. And it is. It's such a. It's such an ancient. Uh, th- you know, when when you're alone with the elements, it's the way they've been doing it for hundreds of years. I mean, I even watched Moana. Uh, yesterday morning with yeah. my daughters and Thank it's you. you're welcome I should say <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But Bob you also uh, Can you just tell us a little bit more because given that you're the same vintage as my dad My dad certainly doesn't keep up contemporary music playlists and he doesn't you know you I know that you're What's fluent. not contemporary about Bach and Beethoven? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Uh, but you're you 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 still you still consume just like every everybody else just uh good music and i know you're fluent on new social media platforms and all of that is that is that something that you 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 force yourself to be disciplined on or is it just because you you frankly enjoy it i enjoy good music i enjoy music i have a very eclectic taste i like to be contemporary in part because of my job um and i have sons who are now 22 almost 22 and 18 and when I get in the car with them and they put on their music, I, I like to at least have some knowledge of what it is. But I, you know, I like I also I love following you know, new artists and this is just a lot to learn from it all. So, yeah. you know, I've got I'm just looking at a couple of playlists. Alicia Keith is a new, by the way, a new album that's pretty damn good, although yeah. she's been around a while. But Lizzo, for instance, I've suddenly uh, fallen in love with in terms of her music. And, you know, uh, she's an extraordinary flutist. Uh, she's quite yes. She's actually she's quite a talented person and quite a well-rounded person too. But anyway, I have yeah. eclectic tastes. I'd say though, I still gravitate to the music of 
my time, uh, Beatles would be first and foremost. Um, they came to America in 1964 when I was 13 and had a very, very, it played an important part in my growing up. And still, I'll, I'll get in that car and listen to Beatles channel on Sirius Radio. It's a great channel. It's Everything a fabulous else. channel. Yep. Yeah. You and I are fuddy duddies because I listen to the same thing. <laughs> we are fuddy duddies, but I, you know, my son. You're less fuddy duddy than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. Bob, had you, I know there, I know a lot of people were interested if you would ever run for office. And I just thought to myself, if he ever does, I'll stop whatever I'm doing and help his campaign, period, just personally. I don't feel that way. I, basically, what I'm getting at is if I worry so much about the incentives of future leadership, I think it's, it's important we need uh, some of our best and brightest to want to run for office. I can't imagine anything worse for your family, um, et cetera, on a personal level. Do you worry at all about the incentives of future leadership? Uh, there's a yes and no to that. I think it's gotten harder um, because, I think in part because of digital technology and social media. Right. Uh, it's, it's, there's nothing genteel about it anymore. No. It's far more mean-spirited to the point of being almost gut-wrenching. Uh, and I think it's far more disruptive to people's lives because just about anything can be said about you and, and they will say it. Um, but, and this is maybe the idealist in me, and which is where I don't worry as much, it is for a great cause. And in my thinking about running for office, I mean, I really, I thought about running for governor and running for senator and running for mayor of New York and, and ultimately thought about running for president, which is, you know, the, I guess, the ultimate sacrifice, really. Uh, I never worried about that. In fact, when I, when I was seeking advice about it, uh, I was asked some very, very blunt questions. Um, you know, are you willing to give really the rest of your life to this cause, whether you do it for, whether you run for two years and serve for four, or you run for two years and serve for eight, you know, and at this, that point in my life, late 60s, early 70s, it could be the, the last vital years that, uh, that I'm around, not to sound fatalistic. And, and, you know, are you willing to do that? The answer was always yes, because I happen to believe that the cause, which is our country and its people, is one that you set, you make the ultimate sacrifice for. That if you really care, about your country and you are being and you are driven to run because of how much you care, how much you love your country, how much you're concerned about its future, how much you want to help it, the, the, your country and its citizens thrive going forward, then you give up, then you, you make the grand sacrifice. And Willow and I had long conversations about it, my wife Willow Bay. She initially, when one, one thing she said to me once was you can run for anything you want, but not with this wife. <laughs> she was dead against my running for anything. And I made the mistake before, well before the 16 election, I found myself, we found ourselves going out to dinner one night. It was a spur of the moment thing, kind of a, wasn't quite a date planned date night. We found ourselves having a moment and at, we sat down at a restaurant and I said to her, I don't know what got into me. I, I'm going to run for president. And she broke out into tears and was very serious. And I felt terrible because I just ruined it. It could have been a good night. Um, and she basically said it will ruin our lives. Um, post the 16 election, uh, after we watched really what became of not only presidential politics, but the presidency, I went back at her because a lot of people were um, asking me whether I'd be willing to consider it. And uh, at that point, she said, that she married me for better or for worse. And if it's something I wanted to do, she would stand by me. The, but she was against it. And my boys were really against it because they looked ahead and realized that if, 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 if I were to do it, it would create a great hardship. And if I were to get the job, it would you know, change their lives forever. And they did not like that idea, but it didn't happen. And the rest is history. So, but going back, Miles, a very good question. Because I think people often conclude that uh, our political system is now not um, generating the best and the brightest. Um, I hope, in all with all idealism, that it will and it should, because we need the best and the brightest to figure out, you know, what's best for our country long term and what direction this company needs to go. This what do you what do you tell your boys about decorum and 
the things that we've now seen almost evaporate in the political world? Well, I first of all, I go back and try to compare it to what was not that long ago, by the way. I, you know, I remember, I think it was Obama that was booed at a um, State of the Union speech. Hmm. And I couldn't believe that was that was kind of the beginning. The first time Look, I know there's little decorum in the campaign itself, but this is a sitting president giving a speech to both houses of Congress which are hallowed halls in a place where you leave your disrespect outside and come in no matter what your politics and you show a level of respect and civility. And it was starting to evaporate right before our eyes. Now it's gotten a lot worse. I try to just tell them that, that we've devolved in a way that we should not feel proud. And it's not good for the country. It's not good for the children of our country to set examples like that. Huh. It's a terrible thing. And I think it probably puts even more of a burden on parents to make sure that their kids do not use these politicians as role models. I, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this, I really did get up this morning. And I needed a palate cleanser. I, that debate ended last night. We sat down to dinner. We're on the West Coast, so 730. And um, we almost couldn't talk. My wife yeah. and I, yeah. we were appalled. We were depressed. Uh, we were angry, we were disappointed, uh, but we couldn't really talk. And uh, so I got up this morning. Uh, so in, in the 60 presidential election, I was nine. Uh, I remember the 56 election, Eisenhower and, and the second Stevenson election. Um, but the 61, I remember vividly. So I decided to watch this morning, Howard K. Smith, former yeah. Anthony, was the moderator of, for the Nick's first Nixon-Kennedy debate. And uh, I was watching it. I watched it for I don't know, almost an hour. It's incredible. First of all, they're both sitting there civilly next to yep. Howard Smith. He then says, Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, you go first. And he delivers, he stands up and he delivers an eight minute off the cuff, essentially, speech about the direction he wants to take the company, the country. Sorry. And Nixon comes up, Senator Kennedy, thank you, shows respect and gives an eight minute speech. Really handled himself well, even though history would suggest otherwise. And you see this, that's not just politeness, it's respect, it's civility, it's decorum, to use your word. I think, my goodness, what's happened in our lifetime, yeah. just in our lifetime, um, it's very disturbing. Uh, these are not our role models and shouldn't be. And when you say, when you conclude the president of the United States shouldn't be a role model. What's so, left? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you've been you've been a great role model, Bob. I'm very lucky. I have a, a, <laughs> a spouse and a partner who is um, smart and um, accomplished and worldly and and uh, loving and a great mother and keeps my feet firmly planted on the ground. Reminds me that uh, in this house, I'm not a CEO. <laughs> I'm not a chairman. <laughs> I'm not a successful businessman or an author. I'm just a, a husband and a dad. And that's really important. Here, here. Yeah. Last question, Miles. Well, I think we've 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 spoken about it. And thanks for sharing uh those recent reflections, uh, Bob. It's it's uh helpful to hear some of your of your stature and thoughtfulness to to say that about the state of our um elected officials. My my last question is really just what what's your what's your prayer for this country and for your um for your future grandchildren? Well, I have a few miles. I don't know if it's, I can, I can name one, but I, you know, I'm uh, in many respects, a product of the American dream. Uh, now, admittedly, as a, as a white man, I was afforded opportunity that perhaps not everybody is afforded equally that. So the, one of my dreams would be that opportunity should be afforded to all. Um, it also is a dream that the generation that we're raising today, whether it's our children, your case, or our grandchildren would look ahead and see the same kind of opportunities that I saw. Not all of them may pan out, but at least have a chance at um, achieving something, a goal, something better for themselves. I worry about the future of our company in that regard, that people don't believe that our country offers the kind of opportunities, certainly not for all, that it did when your dad and I were growing up. Um, so that would be my, my biggest dream. Opportunity for all equally. 
and the ability to look ahead with optimism that there is opportunity. You still have to obviously perform in order to achieve it and, and have some luck as well. But that, I think that would, be the, that would be the number one goal. I also worry about the health of our world from an environmental perspective. I don't think that we can create opportunities for people without protecting the world that they live in. Uh, and that would be number two. Well, here's, here's hoping those want... prayers are answered. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that's about it. Nice to see you. Thanks, guys. Bob. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Coffee with the Greats. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast so that the next episode will appear magically on your phone when it comes out. And check out Bixby Coffee to discover a better way to brew at home. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order and free shipping at Bixby Coffee, B-I-X-B-Y coffee.com. Bixby Coffee.